Chapter Twenty Eight of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Twenty Eight. Shafto Jeb is sent for. Jane Barnard went back to Highclere, sorely depressed by the failure of her mission. Her chief hope had been in the council who had defended her father, and whose defence had hinted at a knowledge of suspicious facts bearing on the murder. To find him as ignorant as herself was a sore disappointment. Her next endeavour must be to discover whether Shafto Jebb, who had furnished the hint on which Mr. Tomplin had framed his cross-examination of Sir Everard Courtney, knew any more than he had pretended to know that evening in the coffee-room at the Peacock. A man of that kind might know a good deal, and in his self-importance hint at secrets which he dared not betray, lest in so doing he should hazard his professional position. Or he might know nothing, and from sheer boastfulness pretend to the possession of some terrible secret. There was an old Dr. Jebb at Osthorpe that poor mother used to go to for medicine, reflected Jane. I wonder whether this one is his son. I might go and see him about the pain in my shoulder. She went to bed that night in very low spirits. This business of clearing her father's name, which she had undertaken with so much energy and determination, began to seem hopeless. The poor old father was lying in Portland prison, a condemned murderer. Pentonville and Millbank had both been full at the time of his respite, so he had been drafted straight to Portland. The mystery of Walter Blake's death was explained to the satisfaction of everybody. How was she, a friendless woman, to induce the world to reverse the sentence that had been passed upon a self-accused criminal? And now, being an economical little woman, Mrs. Barnard began to worry herself about the money she was wasting upon this seemingly hopeless enterprise. She had spent thirty pounds already out of the fifty which her husband had given her when she left home. She had crossed in a Cunard steamer in the hope of being in time for the trial, but she had insisted, much against her husband's wish, on coming as a second-class passenger. "'It'll be comfortable enough for me,' she said, when he remonstrated with her. "'I don't mind roughing it. I came over in an emigrant ship, you know, dear, and was seven weeks on the sea.' What should I do among a lot of simpering saloon passengers, thinking of nothing but eating and drinking and dressing? I'd rather be among homely people who have got their troubles and are obliged to be careful of their money. The same desire to spare her husband's purse had influenced Mrs. Barnard in her choice of the second-floor bedroom over a tobacconist's in one of the narrowest streets in Highclere. For this attic chamber, which was neat and clean and airy, she gave the large sum of four shillings a week, in which rent was included the right to boil her kettle or cook a chop or a steak or a rasher on the kitchen fire. She lived as such unselfish women can live, on tea and bread and butter, with such inexpensive relishes or substitutes for dinner as her fancy suggested. At this rate of expenditure the twenty pounds in hand would last a long time. Yet Jane Barnard had an uneasy sense of wasting her husband's hardly earned money, and she had already asked her landlady to try to get her some plain needlework to do. Disheartened as she was by the result of her journey to London, she wrote to her husband in a hopeful strain, 
lest he too should lose heart and insist on her immediate return. He had been opposed to her coming, and it had been only her intense desire that had prevailed over his dislike to the journey. To own herself baffled and beaten would be too painful to Jane Barnard's proud spirit, for this little woman, who had been reared and educated in a workhouse, and had graduated in the rough school of domestic service, was gifted with an indomitable spirit and a mind not to be ruled by time or space. About a week after her interview with Mr. Tomplin, she walked over to Osthorpe one mild grey afternoon, passing with a shudder by the Pollard Oak and Blatchmardon Copse. Osthorpe looked the quietest place in the universe on this winter afternoon. The south-west wind had breathed across the frosty fields and melted the snow of last week, save here and there where it lay white under a hedge or on a northward-facing bank. The scattered cottages, set far apart on the wide high road leading to nowhere, stood out sharply against the sunless afternoon sky. The old church stood afar off among its tombstones, surrounded with level meadows where the cattle grazed complacently, unconscious of any ecclesiastical influence. Before inquiring for Mr. Jebb's surgery, Mrs. Barnard went to look at Fairview, the one important house in the village. The lodge gate was shut, so she walked along the path by the park paling which bounded the grounds, to get a glimpse at the mansion as she best might. It was so shut in by a fine belt of timber that she had to walk a good way before she came to the point at which the house was visible from the road. Then, looking at the old Tudor mansion through a break in the trees, Jane Barnard saw all the windows closely shuttered, as if the house were empty. The sight moved her curiously. Did it mean absence or death? She was so eager to know this that she ran back to the lodge entrance as fast as her feet could carry her. She rang the bell, and was answered after an interval of some minutes by a lodge-keeper, who looked indignant at being disturbed in his afternoon nap. "'Are the family away?' she asked. "'Yes, you ought to know that by the look of the place, and not come startling folks pulling that there bell like mad. What do you want?' I wish to see Sir Everard Courtney. Well, you're just three days too late. Sir Everard and Miss Courtney left three days ago for the south of France, and maybe they're going to Algiers. Wasn't it very sudden? Well, it was sudden, if you must needs know. Sir Everard went away for his health. Our winter's too cold for him. Perhaps you'd better go up to the house and state your business to the housekeeper, and she'll let Sir Everard know about it when she sends him his letters, if it's anything particular. Oh, no, it's not very particular. I'll wait till he comes home. Does he go abroad every winter? Oh, he has been away travelling of an autumn pretty often, but this is the first winter he's gone abroad. Oh, good afternoon, said Jane whereupon the man stared at her through the rails of the gate, gave her a surly nod, and went back to finish his nap. "'This looks like running away,' thought Mrs. Barnard. "'Why should he go abroad this winter above every other winter? I wonder whether it was Mr. Jebb who recommended him to go on account of his health.' She now set herself to discover the village surgeon's abode. It was in a lane that ran at right angles with the broad village street, 
not far from the three sugar-loaves, and within the shadow of schoolhouse and church. It was not a bad old house, but it had been sorely neglected for the last half-century. In its palmy days it had been the habitation of a prosperous farmer, but with the advancement of enlightenment the farmer had taken it into his head that the old homestead was not good enough for him, and had built himself a lordly dwelling-house in a better situation, whereupon the homestead had been rented by old Dr. Jebb, and from that time forward had sunk gradually to decay. All that Dr. Jebb's profession had ever done for him had been to feed and clothe himself and his numerous offsprings, until those fledglings were old enough to be flung out of the family nest and pick up their own subsistence in the highways and byways of life. On the death of the original Jebb, who, without having taken the superior degree, had always been called doctor, his practice had descended to his eldest son, together with the household furniture and the pestles, mortars and gallipots in the surgery, and on the strength of this inheritance the jovial Shafto had married, and filled the shabby, worn-out old house with a progeny as numerous as the previous generation which had occupied it. He was a man who took life lightly, and though Mrs. Jebb had aspirations after better things, in the shape of paint and paper, curtains and carpets, the surgeon opined that what had been good enough for his father and mother was good enough for him, a comforting doctrine to a man who never had any spare cash wherewith to improve and embellish his surroundings. "'It's very dreadful,' sighed poor Mrs. Jebb. "'The rain comes in through the nursery ceiling to such an extent that I expect to get up some morning and find those poor children drowned in their beds. I always have to put an umbrella up over Percy's crib in stormy weather, and as for the stable, the roof is in such a weak state that I do believe it will tumble down and bury the grey mare some day while you're out of the way.' Mm, "'The stable does want a little repair, certainly,' said Shafto, who was more careful of the mare than of his children. He expected them to grow and thrive as he had grown and thriven, like the birds of the air. The house had a certain air of homely comfort in spite of its shabbiness and dilapidation. The Jebs lived on the fat of the land, and kept good fires, and were altogether inclined to take life pleasantly. They were hospitable to a ridiculous degree, in the idea of their less liberal neighbours, the Uphams, for instance, who entertained their friends with a formal dinner two or three times a year, and never gave meat or drink to anybody between whiles. Mrs. Jebb was a meek, motherly woman, who was always cooking when she was not mending, and who considered Shafto one of the greatest men of his age, on an intellectual level with Gladstone and Disraeli. Only fate had hindered his coming to the front. She was too meek of spirit to give utterance to this opinion to any one except her own children, but to them she asserted the fact dogmatically. "'If your father had only had an opening, he would have been Prime Minister before now,' she told them. Meek as Mrs. Jebb was, she was frequently involved in difficulties and discordances with her servants. She could only afford to keep two, and there was a great deal of work to be done by these two. Perhaps that difficulty might have been got over if Mrs. Jebb had not helped them. Her assistance turned the scale and made war where peace might have been. It is a fact in domestic history 
that servants never stay long in a house where the mistress helps in the work essayists of the male sex may write fiercely against the fashionable lady who reads a novel when she might be washing the breakfast things or who gads about to afternoon tea drinkings when she should be helping to cook the dinner the fact remains that the only households of whose machinery the wheels go round smoothly are the houses in which the mistress interferes in no overt manner with the duties of her servants mrs jebb helped the domestics from morning till night and in so doing she was continually behind the scenes and saw a great many things which it would have been better for her to have left unseen and deprived her servants of those stray scraps of liberty and leisure which would have sweetened toil and bondage the hour loitered away at the shifty dinner with such comfortable gossip and idle laughter as make the best sauce to cold mutton the half-hour at tea with elbows on table and saucer balanced on outspread hand the friendly dropping in of a sister or cousin the love-letter written before supper mrs jebb's servants found no such leisure moments or unobserved pleasures in their lives and after two or three months drudgery they discovered that the work was too heavy for them and gave their mistress warning at which mrs jebb although she was accustomed to the calamity usually shed tears and declared that she couldn't have believed that this last anne or jane or mary would have turned out as ungrateful as the rest the fact is you're too kind to them said shafto you pamper and pet them till they don't know what they're doing well, it was only last summer i saw them eating cold salmon it was only the tail and the fins shafto i made salmon cutlets of all the fish that was left for your breakfast and very good those cutlets are said the surgeon i think you fry fish better and better every day oh, i take a pleasure in it answered mrs jebb with mild delight at her husband's compliment on this january afternoon when jane barnard came to the homestead mrs jebb was in her usual difficulty sarah her nurse and confidential servant had given warning and the warning was to expire in a few days yet mrs jebb had found no substitute for the deserter don't throw out your dirty water before you're sure of clean said shafto who was fond of proverbs and aphorisms but the dirty water had a will of its own and had made up its mind to go and there was no clean water forthcoming emily jebb had shed some furtive tears this afternoon while she busied herself with the composition of a curry a dish which her husband loved he had his own views and theories as to the concoction of this savoury meat he made his own curry powder and believed that he had discovered a mixture superior to anything that had ever been achieved by the rajahs of india mrs barnard knocked modestly at the surgery door feeling that she had no right to approach the parish surgeon in his domestic character but mr jebb was miles away on his afternoon round and the door was opened by his eldest daughter a tall slip of a girl in very short petticoats who had been lying on the surgery rug reading robinson crusoe pa's not at home she said curtly ma is if you want to see her you haven't come about the nurse's place have you oh no miss i wanted to consult your father about my health pa will be home to his dinner at six we have tea and pa has dinner 
interjected Miss Jebb, who was of a communicative temper and had an abrupt and somewhat breathless way of speaking. I thought you might have come after the nurse's situation. Mrs. Barnard looked thoughtful. She saw a possible opportunity in this suggestion. Is Mrs. Jebb in want of a nurse? she asked. Oh, yes, we want one dreadfully, answered the eager girl with youthful candour. Sally has behaved most ungratefully. We liked her so much, you know, and we were very good with her, except Effie. Effie has a bad temper, you know. She has broken chilblains, and Ma says that's the reason. And Sally gave Ma warning one day all of a sudden, and she's going the day after tomorrow, and I shall have to nurse the baby and keep all the others quiet till we get a new nurse, and I hate the thought of it. Perhaps you know of someone who might suit Ma, speculated the damsel, staring at Mrs. Barnard with big round eyes. I think I do know of someone who might suit, for a short time at any rate. Could I see your mamma? Ma's busy in the kitchen, and I know she's doing something very particular, answered Florence Jebb, to whose mind her father's dinner was among the leading facts in life. But I think she'd see you. Please come into the breakfast room. The damsel left Robinson Crusoe sprawling wide open on the hearthrug, in company with a lively kitten and a disabled doll and led the way up a little stair into the breakfast-room. It was breakfast-room, dinner, tea, and supper-room, too, and smelled strongly of meals, but there was a cheery fire in the old-fashioned grate, there was a bright little copper kettle singing on the hob, there was a roomy, luxurious easy-chair beside the fire ready for the surgeon, whose slippers lay in a snug corner close by. Altogether, the room, shabby as it was, had a comfortable look, and even the sleek tabby cat stretched before the fire suggested the placid ease of home. Here Mrs. Barnard waited while Miss Jebb went in quest of her mother. If I were to take the nurse's place for a month or so, it would save me board and lodging, and I should be likely to hear all that Mr. Jebb had to tell, Jane said to herself, oh, and as to hard work, I don't mind that a bit. Mrs. Jebb came in, flushed with the heat of the fire and the anxiety of a true artist. "'My daughter tells me you know of a nurse who might suit me,' she said. Uh, "'Yes, madam. I thought if you wouldn't mind taking a person for a short time while you're looking about you, as one may say, I should be very glad of the situation myself. But I could hardly stay more than a month or six weeks.' I came over from America on business, and I shall have to go back to my house and family in about that time. Hmm. You seem a very respectable person, and, well, yes, hesitated Mrs. Jebb, who, being of a procrastinating temper, had delayed looking for a new nurse till the old one was on the eve of departure, and now knew not where to find one. Yes, I think perhaps we might manage. It would be a convenience for a time, and I should be able to suit myself better if I had leisure to look about me. Are you an American? Oh, no, ma'am. I went out to America when I was nineteen and settled there. Does your husband approve of your being away from him? Oh, yes, ma'am. Oh, at least he doesn't mind it, knowing that I had important business in England. My business is not finished yet, or I should go back to him. I might have to ask for a day, perhaps, once or twice, while I was in your service. Oh, you could have that, of course. I'm always glad to oblige my servants if they're obliging to me. You understand children, I suppose? 
I was nursemaid before I was fifteen, ma'am, and I have brought up my own dear children. Various questions followed as to whether the applicant could do plain needlework, a little dressmaking now and then, trim the children's bonnets, and was willing to make herself generally useful and so on. I can turn my hand to pretty well anything, ma'am, from trimming a bonnet to cooking a dinner, but I must tell you that I can't offer any reference, unless it is to the person in whose house I have lodged three weeks, and that's not a long character. I'm quite a stranger in England. Mm, you look very respectable, said Mrs. Jebb meditatively. I don't think I should mind running the risk, but Mr. Jebb mustn't know it. He's so very particular. It is always well to hold up one member of the family as an embodied code of law, severe as that of the Mede and Persian. Shafto Jebb was one of the easiest of men, save in matters of meat and drink, but Mrs. Jebb had a diplomatic way of talking of him, as if he were a tyrant of unappeasable ferocity. So it was settled that Mrs. Barnard should come to the homestead with bag and baggage next evening, by which time Sarah the deserter would have gone forth to seek her fortune elsewhere, and the nursery would have been scrubbed and dusted in honour of the newcomer. "'I hope you'll take to the children,' said Mrs. Jebb. "'They're rather self-willed, but they have warm, loving hearts.' "'I'm not afraid, ma'am. I can always get on with children.' "'You haven't told me your name.' "'Barnard, ma'am. Jane Barnard.' Mrs. Barnard went back to Highclere, well pleased with her afternoon's work. To live at Osthorpe in domestic service, unobserved, unsuspected, as an unemployed stranger might be, would give her excellent opportunities of finding out much that she wanted to know. If there were any dark secret in the past life of Sir Everard Courtney, she would be likely to get some inkling of it here, where his life had been spent, where he was the one important person in the place, and must needs have been always the object of closer scrutiny. Tangley, too, was very near, and she would be able to know what course Morton Blake was taking. Then again, the idea of spending a few weeks near the place of her birth was pleasant to her, anxious as she was to accomplish her mission and to go back to her husband and children. Thus it was with a cheerful spirit that she took up her abode in Mr. Jebb's household. She found the habits of the surgeon's family peculiarly favourable to her object. The general usefulness to which she had pledged herself included waiting at table while Mr. Jebb dined, and as the jovial surgeon was loquacious at his meals, and was one of those reckless, blustering talkers who rarely pause to consider what heed the listeners may be taking of their talk, Jane Barnard was in a fair way to hear his real opinion upon all subjects. It was Mr. Jebb's custom to dine surrounded by his olive branches, every one of whom, down to the cantankerous baby, he honestly loved. But this family gathering did not prevent the breadwinner dining daintily and on exclusive fare. His little dinner was distinct and separate from the general meal. Wife and children dined at one o'clock, and for them the evening banquet was a compromise between tea and supper. Mrs. Jebb managed the tea-tray at one end of the table, while the other end was neatly set forth with Mr. Jebb's particular bottled ale, his plate of soup, his little bit of fish, his curry or bird or sweetbread to follow. He was a man who boasted that he wanted very little, 
and who frankly owned that he required that little to be of the best quality. Mrs. Jebb had made it the study of her life to satisfy her lord, and she had no haunting idea that her existence had been wasted because its chief occupation had been in the kitchen. The children made their evening meal of such savoury odds and ends as a careful housekeeper could afford to give them, eked out by bread and jam, a homely plum cake of satisfying solidity, watercresses or the occasional shrimp. "'What sort of a day have you had, Shafto?' asked Mrs. Jebb one February evening, when her lord had approved her last intellectual effort in the shape of a filleted sole with mushroom sauce. "'So-so. Oh, Sir Nathaniel sent for me this morning. The election has put him off his feed. Too much excitement for an old one like him, though there's plenty of pace in the old fellow yet. I gave him a ball and threw him out of work for a day or two. Shafto had a way of speaking of his patients as if they were horses, to which his wife and family were accustomed. "'No talk of Sir Everard and Miss Courtney's return, I suppose,' said Mrs. Jebb. "'Not likely. If he went abroad for his health, he ought not to come back till May.' "'If he went for his health? Why, of course, that was the reason he went, wasn't it?' asked Mrs. Jebb, her curiosity aroused by that significant if. "'Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. One can't always get at a man's real meaning. The whole thing was so sudden. I never heard Sir Everard complain.' He seemed dull and out of spirit some time, and was fonder of sitting by the fire in his library, poring over stupid old books, than a healthy middle-aged man ought to be. But I never knew there was anything amiss with him, and yet I'm supposed to be the family doctor. And one fine morning he rushes up to London, sees a physician, and comes home and says he's been ordered to the south of Europe, or Algiers even, on account of his lungs. I call it an insult to his local adviser to act in such a way. But there's more behind it all than anybody knows. Oh, what can there be? asked Mrs. Jebb, leaning over her tea-tray and looking intently at her husband, as he coquetted with the last morsel of his sweetbread and mopped up the gravy with a bit of bread. My dear, I'm not going to talk, said Mr. Jebb, and then, for once in a way, he appeared to be conscious that the youthful mind is not a stranger to curiosity, for he glanced at the clustering heads of his household gathered about a dish of winkles, and murmured, "'Little pictures, you know, my dear.' The nurse was standing at the sideboard cutting bread and butter, and of her presence neither Mr. Jebb nor his wife took any heed. As a stranger from the other side of the Atlantic, she could have no possible interest in local gossip. "'Tell me by and by, dear,' said Mrs. Jebb meekly. Whenever Shafto said he was not going to talk, it was a sure sign that he was longing to impart his ideas to a sympathetic mind. Mrs. Jebb occupied herself in filling the cups which her children thrust into the tea-tray, each clamorous to have his or her claim allowed. "'I've only had one cup, Ma,' remonstrated Florence. "'Percy has had two, and I believe Algie has had three. "'That's another of Flo's crumpers,' cried Algernon, with his mouth full and his chin anointed with jam, like a classical comedian smeared with the lees of wine. "'What do you expect will happen to you if you tell such out-and-outers as that?' 
oh, if i stuff myself with strawberry jam on the top of winkles to the extent you do i should expect to have a fit retorted florence jane barnard laid a soothing hand on flo's sharp shoulder and offered her a tempting crust from the new loaf you are disturbing your pa and ma dear she whispered i'll take care you get a good cup of tea mrs barnard had been at the homestead three weeks and had already acquired a great influence over the children who were not altogether bad children although they had been dragged up anyhow and were scampish in their ideas and behaviour i'll tell you what volunteered mr jebb leaning back in his chair and picking his teeth in a leisurely manner as if it were the next best thing to dining i don't mind going so far as to say that a certain marriage will never come off what marriage oh how dull you are emily m b and d c of course what dulcie dulcie not marry morton cried mrs jebb oh why it would break both of their hearts i've seen them together times and often you know shafto for she always asks me to tea when i call upon her and she always returns my call and though it's a great effort to put on one's best gown and bonnet and go out like a lady to pay a visit i like to do it now and then because it reminds me that i am a lady however i may slave at the housework i call it fiddle-faddle interjected the surgeon contemptuously if you go out you should go for a good country walk that would freshen you up a bit oh, not half so much as a nice cup of tea and a little friendly talk in miss courtney's pretty morning-room everything is so elegant there the books the china and the furniture i feel as if i were in a new world oh and oh shafto i'm sure they adore each other and if the marriage were to be broken off i believe it would be the death of her men have died and worms have eaten them but not for love quoted shafto who had picked up a score or so of shakespearean saws from other people and passed for a shakespearean scholar without ever having read so much as a single scene in a single play i should be very sorry if the young lady were to fret i vaccinated her and i've attended her ever since sir everard brought her back to fairview measles scarlatina chicken-pox whooping cough i brought her through them all beautifully so you can't suppose i'm not interested in her welfare still i say that marriage will never come off there's an antagonism between the two men sir e and m b they may smother it for a time but sooner or later it will break out in a big blaze like a fire that's been ever so long smouldering i saw m s face the day of the trial saw him watch sir e while the prisoner's counsel was cross-examining him and there was mischief in it yes mrs jebb there was mischief that marriage will never come off or if it does there'll be misery for somebody i've seen what domestic misery means silent secret a beautiful home every luxury that wealth can buy a position in the county youth beauty pride of race but the trail of the serpent was over it all that's where it is mrs jebb the trail was there the slimy silvery track that showed where the snake had been 
the cook an unusual apparition in that room burst suddenly in breathless her cap half blown off her head oh please sir you're to go to tangley manor directly minute mr blake's took ill and the ladies think it's brain fever didn't i say so exclaimed mr jebb looking at his wife with an air of gloomy triumph as he put his toothpick in his pocket and rose to go and although he had said nothing of the kind mrs jebb looked upon him as a prophet End of chapter twenty eight